Um, let's just pause and be quiet and gather our, our hearts and our minds um, as we come to God's word this morning. Uh, let's pray together. Father, it's good uh, for us to be together uh, as your family. Um, It's good for us to have a chance to be in each other's company and to encourage each other and to uh, just enjoy being together. But we especially want to gather together um, to listen uh, to your word. And we want to have a posture as we come to your word of being ready and eager to hear from you. Um, We want to ask that you would give us humble hearts to receive the things that you want to say to us this morning. And we want to pray that you would give us obedient feet that would be ready to put into action and into practice uh, the things that you challenge us with this morning. Um, Father, if any of us, maybe especially this morning, just need a word from you to wake us up or to encourage us or to give us a shake or to bring healing to some part of our life, Um, Father, would you speak to us this morning by your word and by your spirit um, in a way that would make a real deep difference? Um, And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Some of you will have noticed uh, we're we're in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Some of you will have noticed we're not um, covering on a Sunday morning everything in Ephesians. Um, So I'm skipping over um, a beautiful section at the end of chapter one. Um, And I want to encourage you in your own exploring through Ephesians not to skip over it. The end of Ephesians is this beautiful prayer that Paul prays for for the Christians in Ephesus and in in Asia Minor. Um, And I guess the big thing I want to encourage you with that prayer, um, certainly go away and study it uh, and all of that, but especially pray it. It's a prayer. Turn it into prayer. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for our church, pray it for your family, pray it for your neighbours, um, turn it into prayer. That's what it's there for, I think. And I think um, you'll find it um, tremendously um, enriching of your prayer life if you just take Paul's prayer and weave it into your own uh, prayers. Um, so do, do go and uh, do that this week. Uh, but we're jumping uh, now over to the start of chapter two. Um, and before we, we read the passage for this morning, um, just to maybe introduce our topic, this may be a slightly silly story, but it'll, it'll set us up for what we want to think about. So there's a story that's told um, in my family um, whenever my grandparents were working as missionaries in Japan. Um, some people from the UK came to visit them, as often happened, um, and they met um, a group of Japanese students who met once a week with my grandfather and what they were doing was they were studying the Bible in English, which was a way of the, the, the Japanese students wanted to learn English. Um, my grandfather wanted to teach them the Bible, so they, they got to learn English, but they also got to study the Bible at the same time and talk about uh, what was there. But when the visitors um, were chatting to these Japanese students in their kind of um, basic English, they, they noticed the Japanese students kept using a word that um, they, they couldn't quite figure out, and it sounded like S-A-N, San. Um, and it, if, if any of you know a little bit about Japanese culture, San is an honorific that you put on the end of a name. So you would call someone, if, uh, uh, so I, well, my name's hard to do it with, but Steve over there, you would call Steve San to be honorific, uh, Honourable Steve. 
Um, so they, they got a bit confused about why these Japanese students, when they were speaking English, kept using the word San, until eventually it clicked. They were talking about the Bible, um, and one of them talked about how all have sand and fall short of the glory of God. And they realized this is what happens when you're taught English by a man from Carnlock. Um, and that actually it was the word sin, which sounded for all the world like Sam. So um, it's, a, it's a story we've always enjoyed in my family. Um, we want to talk about Sam this morning. We want to talk about uh, sin. It may not be the most um, comfortable topic or the most uh, fashionable topic, uh, but it's, it's what we want to uh, explore this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2, I'm not going to read it in the Carnlock accent, um, but reading from the beginning, a very famous passage. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, so that's our, our passage we're going to explore uh, this morning. Uh, but I wonder, maybe to start with a question, um, I wonder if I would ask you uh, this question, I wonder how you would answer. What, what is wrong with the world? Um, and maybe, uh, maybe even as I say that, you can bring to mind um, different things, specific things that are wrong with the world. And you may, there may be particular things that come easily to your mind or your heart uh, that trouble you, that grieve you, uh, that depress you, that anger you, um, that are wrong in our world. Um, things that are really out of kilter, things that are abusive and violent and unjust and cruel um, and all the rest. Um, but I guess when I ask a question, what's wrong with the world, um, I'm wanting you to think not just about the specific examples of what's wrong with the world, but what is going on at the root or at the heart of all of that? Um, how would you diagnose the heart of the problem? So behind all the specific things that are wrong, what, what, is, it, what is going on at the heart, uh, the root of the problem? Um, and you'll have noticed as we were reading uh, Paul's diagnosis of what's wrong is pretty blunt. He's very direct in this passage. He doesn't mince his words. Um, so I want to just talk through uh, the things that Paul says, Paul's diagnosis of what's gone wrong with humanity and with the world. Um, so he starts off uh, with these two words, transgressions and sins. 
which are two words that really describe our behaviour that has got gone out of kilter. Um, and kind of they're kind of two words that together sum up nearly everything that's gone wrong because transgressions refers to whenever we step over the line. So it refers to whenever there are think, places we should not go, things we should not do, behaviours we should not indulge in, but we keep going there. We keep stepping over the line. So that's transgressions. Um, the word that's used for sins, on the other hand, is a word that refers to missing the mark or falling short of a, a goal or a standard. So this time, instead of talking about misbehaviour, it's talking about the ways in which we, we don't manage to live up to the good. Um, we want to do good. We want to be a good human being. We want to be a good neighbour. We want to be a good father. We want to be a good friend. But we keep falling short of the good. Um, so can you see how the two words together sum up both what, what we sometimes call sins of commission and sins of omission? The things we do wrong and the things we leave undone. Um, in, our, in our lives. Um, so one of the old prayers of confession uh, that in some traditions Christians pray says, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And those words, transgressions and sins, kind of capture all of that, both the, the misbehaviour and the, uh, the falling short of the glory, the falling short of uh, the good. Um, so, that's kind of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to be, be really down to earth uh, with this, and I'm going to sum that up, that, that kind of behaviour stuff as messed up behaviour, okay? So that's a, just being very non-theological in our language. All the ways in which our surface behaviour is not what it could be or should be, okay? Um, messed up behaviour. But as Paul goes on, Paul helps us understand what's going on underneath that surface misbehaviour. Um, and there are three things that he talks about, uh, which are these. And I've, I've gone a bit maybe over the top with my diagrams here today, so I've got arrows going everywhere. So uh, the, fir- the first thing, or I'm not doing them in the order that Paul does them, but he talks about the flesh, uh, sometimes translated as the sinful nature. In other words, there's something within us which causes us to go astray. Um, there's a problem, Paul says, with our desires and thoughts. Um, classically, people have expressed this by saying our desires are disordered. Our appetites and our longings and our hungers are disordered. They're misdirected. Um, our thoughts are confused and muddled. But Paul is saying our behavior, which we see on the surface, comes from within. Um, and of course, here, sometimes people try to set up Paul as being in conflict with Jesus. But here Paul is simply echoing the teaching of Jesus. Um, Again and again, Jesus talks about this, that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and that our actions come. That just as the fruit of the tree grows out of the nature of the tree, just as the the water flows out of the nature of the spring, so our behaviour, our surface words and actions come from the heart. Jesus and Paul agree that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. There's something has gone wrong within. Um, And in thinking about the flesh or the sinful nature, um, the picture I've often found helpful, and I know it may sound a little little silly, um, 
is the picture of a wonky shopping trolley where it seems like every time I choose a trolley in the supermarket, I get one that won't steer right. Um, but what happens whenever I, I'm wanting to go straight down the fruit and veg aisle because I'm being virtuous, going for the fruit and veg, but the, I'm wanting to go this way, but the trolley keeps veering this way and threatening to crash into an old lady or a pile of, a pile of tins that I'm going to knock over or whatever. And so for, for me, that kind of sums up. There's something has gone wrong in the trolley. That means even when you're trying to go this way, it keeps veering into trouble. And that, that, that to me is a picture of what we're talking about with the sinful nature. Um, something has gone wrong within that causes us to, um, to go off, off course. So that's the flesh. Uh, what's the second thing Paul sees at the root of our behavior problem? Um, is what he calls the world. He says in verse 2, we follow the ways of the world. And so maybe, so this time we're talking about an influence from outside us, from around us, not something from within, but something that comes at us from the outside. Uh, and so again, maybe if you want an image for this, maybe rather than thinking of a wonky shopping trolley, we could think of a boat. Uh, you could think of yourself in a, in a boat or a ship and you're trying to go in that direction, but there might be external factors. There might be waves or currents or wind all trying to kind of, uh, get you off course, so you, it's hard to get where you want to get. Um, we're blown off course. Um, now, obviously, not everything in the world around us is bad or dangerous, so it's really important to remember that. There's lots in our world uh, around us that is good and is to be encouraged and celebrated, but there are also winds and currents that take us into trouble, that take us off course. Uh, there are voices and influences and pressures and whispers in our world which will steer us away from the good and away from God. Um, I think it's important to remember those influences can be very subtle. So maybe, maybe sometimes we, when we talk about the world, we immediately think of very obvious things like pornography or temptations to drunkenness or taking drugs or something like that. And those pressures are, are certainly there. Um, but it's also worth remembering the influence of the world can be that really subtle influence when you're in work from your boss or from your colleagues to just be a little bit dishonest in what you're doing, to start cut corners a little bit and be a little bit lacking in integrity. Um, it can be when, when you're with your friends and there's just that little subtle temptation to join in with um, mean-spirited gossip about someone else and speak badly of them behind their back. That, th- those are the influence. It could just be the, the drip, drip, drip of advertising that keeps telling us that we need to buy things in order to be complete, in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled. All of that is the seductive whisper of the world, which if we're not vigilant, will take us off course and take us into trouble. So where does our bad behavior come, come from? It comes from within because uh, there's a problem in the heart. Uh, with our sinful nature. It comes from without because there's all these voices and pressures and currents uh, that take us off course. And then thirdly, um, there's the devil. Uh, Paul doesn't call him that. Well, I'll say in a second what Paul calls him. Um, but Paul makes really clear we have a spiritual enemy who is actively seeking to harm us and to take us off course. And of course, in the Bible, He's given many names. He's called the devil. He's called Satan, which means, simply means the enemy. Um, he's also called the deceiver and the tempter and the father of lies. 
Um, I find it fascinating what Paul calls him in this passage. He calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And he calls him the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. They're, they're both very graphic images. There's something where Paul is saying, this enemy is in the very air we breathe. He is all around us. Um, and his, his influence is all pervasive. And his desire is always, always, always to lead us into disobedience. Um, his desire actually hasn't changed from the garden. Um, his desire is to, to encourage, to undermine our trust in God and God's goodness, and therefore to lead us into disobedience. Remember back in the garden, did God really say? And the undermining of trust, is God really good? Can you really trust God? And then comes the disobedience. Um, and his agenda hasn't really changed um, since the beginning. Um, so there's Paul's kind of very blunt, very graphic summary of what has gone wrong. Uh, on the surface, our behavior is messed up, and it's coming from the flesh within. It's coming from the world around. It's coming from the devil uh, who is whispering and seducing and deceiving uh, as we go through our lives. And as if all of that wasn't bad enough, because that's not a very pretty picture, um, Paul uses this phrase that has often troubled and bothered people. Um, he says, we are by nature deserving of wrath. Um, literally, it, what, what the phrase says is we are children of wrath. Um, we are in the spotlight of God's righteous anger. Right? Um, we're not going to have time this morning to talk lots about God's anger. But we might mention it again in a little minute. But that's, that adds to this picture of what has gone wrong. And if you're looking for maybe one word uh, that is kind of sums up Paul's diagnosis, it comes right at the beginning. What does he say? He says we are dead. <laughs> dead. Um, and sometimes, sometimes when you're reading this, you can think that sounds like an exaggeration because um, I don't know about you, but I know lots of people who don't know Jesus. Uh, and they are, um, at first glance, and even at second and third glance, very much alive. Right? They are um, in body, healthy and vigorous and energetic, some of them. <laughs> um, they are... Many of them in their minds are curious and intelligent and creative people who think, uh, have a, a lively mind uh, that thinks about all kinds of stuff. And also, many of them, when you get to know them, even in terms of their heart, they're not all bad. There's lots of goodness. There's lots of kindness and courage and generosity and all kinds of stuff um, as well. And so maybe we can have a bit of a reaction where we say, surely Paul is exaggerating here. Surely those people are not dead. Uh, there, there might be problems, but they're not dead. And why does Paul use such blunt language? Um, I, I think there's probably a couple of reasons. I think one of them is because sin always has a deathly, deadening, deadly effect. Um, why? Because sin always separates us from God, and God is the source and giver of life. So anything that gets in the way of our fellowship and intimacy and oneness with God is going to have a deathly deadening effect because it shuts us off from the fountain of life, which is God. Um, and sometimes that deadening deathly effect is really obvious. And you can meet someone in whom you can almost see that deadly effect being worked out. 
And sometimes it's kind of hidden, but it's working away within. Um, sometimes it's fairly deep. So that's one reason why I think Paul uses the language of death. Um, the other one, I think, is probably this, uh, because Paul wants to make it really clear that we are helpless to rescue ourselves. Right? I think that's, for, for me, at the heart of this diagnosis. The problem with human behavior and the human heart and the whole of human society is so deep that we can't hope to fix ourselves. We are way beyond self-help and self-improvement. We don't just need a little bit of a hand or a little bit of a help and then we can get back on our feet and sort it out for ourselves. The problem is much more radical than that. Um, we are like Lazarus in the tomb, right? We are dead. We are helpless if left to ourselves. Um, and that's at the heart of Paul's diagnosis. So, how are you feeling about all that? It's a happy sermon uh, this morning. Um, I want to say this, that we need to talk about sin. Um, and why am I saying that? Because it's become unfashionable to talk about sin, certainly in our wider culture. Um, and even sometimes within the church, um, some people will maybe suggest that we maybe need to drop this language um, and talk about things in other ways. Um, and I, I want to say this, one of those moments where I want to say, I, I really, really understand why that might be tempting, right? Um, I, I don't know about other parts of the world, but I, on our island here in Ireland and here in our little corner up here, I don't think we've done a very good job in the way we've talked about sin. Uh, what do I mean by that? I think, I think sometimes we've turned the volume up on sin and judgment and the wrath of God and turned the volume down on other notes within the biblical message in such a way that the whole melody of the gospel has become kind of discordant. Have you ever, have you ever played a piece of music on a terrible hi-fi where some bits are just too high in the mix and some bits are too low and your favourite bit of music can sound awful on your ears? And I think we have done that sometimes to the gospel. It hasn't sounded like good news of great joy for all people. And part of our problem has been around how we have talked about sin. And yet, I still want to say this morning, we need to talk about sin. Because without talking about sin, we can't get to the heart of our problem. And therefore, we won't find healing and freedom and joy. That's why we've got to talk about it. Um, you've got to get an accurate diagnosis in order to, to find healing. Um, there's a man called Richard Niebuhr, um, who probably most of us haven't heard of. Uh, Niebuhr was a, a theologian and a public intellectual in America in the 1930s. Um, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a Northern Irish um, pulpit-thumping preacher by any means. He was quite a sophisticated uh, kind of neoliberal. It's what, what the, the part of the church he was in uh, was called. But Niebuhr became really troubled by what had happened to the Christian message in his day. And this is the way he summed it up. He said, in the preaching of my day, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It's not quite a... A neighbor started to become troubled. He said, something about our gospel has become really weak and watery and ineffective, and it's not able to deal with 
the problems that are going on in our lives and in society. Um, and as the Second World War happened and the evils that happened uh, under the Nazi regime and so on, people realised that that optimistic theology that had wanted to get rid of all this talk about sin couldn't deal with the root of the problem. Um, and maybe one of the reasons I'm, I'm mentioning that, apart from that I like that quote from Niebuhr, um, is that that temptation to sideline sin has happened many times in the history of the church. Niebuhr was writing in the 1930s. There's, been, there's an optimistic theology that arises periodically, but it keeps coming up against the reality of human sin and proving to be ineffective and to not bring freedom and to not bring healing. And it keeps failing again. Um, and actually, I think our culture at this moment in time is tremendously confused about what is wrong with the world. Um, I'm going to risk sharing this. Which, this is uh, this little cartoon. Uh, well, lots of you will never have seen before, but younger people may have seen it. Uh, this has become uh, what people sometimes call a meme, which gets shared in like lots of different corners of the internet uh, in lots of different purposes. And it, in a little nutshell, if you can if you can see the cartoon. It's a picture of a little dog sitting in a house that's on fire. But as the, the picture zooms in on him, he's saying, this is fine. Right? And it's become an internet, in the weird world of internet land, it's a shorthand for whenever things are quite clearly not fine and people are trying to pretend that they are. That's, that's when people use this uh, little cartoon. Uh, and that's what comes to mind for me. Um, people in our culture right now want to say that human beings are essentially good and want to be optimistic about human nature. And all the while, the world is on fire. The problems with human behaviour seem to be getting worse rather than better. And for me, this, this little cartoon sums up uh, very poignantly um, that problem. Um, Steve Turner, who's a wonderful Christian poet, um, wrote, wrote a, a poem called Creed in which he was trying to express kind of the, the things that people believe in the modern world, kind of an alternative to the, the Christian creed. Um, uh, the whole poem is wonderful, but just want to read you a little bit of it. He says, We believe that everything's getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated. You can prove anything with evidence. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behaviour that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. And it goes on and on. Right? Uh, do you see, I wonder, can you see how that sums up some of the confusion of our culture at this moment? That we don't know what to do about the behaviours that are out of control because we want to be optimistic that it's, this is fine. We're fine. People are good. It's just our behaviour that lets us down. And we don't know how to get to the heart of the problem. And so all of that to say, um, as unfashionable and uncomfortable as it is, um, I think we need every part of Paul's diagnosis. Um, even the bit about the devil, which is even more unfashionable than talking about sin. Uh, but if we don't pay attention to our hidden spiritual enemy, we won't, get to, we won't be able to diagnose all that's going wrong. And even the bit about God's anger, which is probably even less fashionable uh, than everything else, um, there's a, there's a strange kind of way in which the sentimental optimism of our culture actually leads to despair and death and sadness. 
whereas the stark, blunt realism of Paul's message um, actually leads to life and freedom and healing and joy. There's kind of a paradox in that, isn't there? Um, We have to face these things if we're going to be set free, if we're going to be healed, if we're going to break through to joy. So, I I promise this is going to get more cheerful now, okay? Uh, Well, it will, it will. Um, I I guess I want to ask... uh, for, for the, the sort of the, the, the second part of our message. Um, so I'm, I've kind of been saying we need to talk about this. It's not comfortable, it's not fashionable, but we really need to talk about it because our world is tremendously confused. Um, but I also want to ask, how can we do better in how we talk about this if we've got this wrong in the past? Um, and I want, to, I want to zoom in on two phrases that Paul uses that I think really help us to talk about this better with our neighbours and with our wider culture. Um, And the first one is this. Um, I love these words in the passage. Paul says, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, right? Um, And I I want you to pause for a moment with me and think about the context here that we've talked a little bit about in Ephesians. Um, Because I think it makes these words extraordinary, genuinely extraordinary. Paul, Paul is writing to the Ephesians who are Gentiles from a pagan background. Uh, they therefore would have in their past gone to the pagan temple and worshipped idols. Uh, they may well have participated in lots of quite dramatic um, sinful behaviour, uh, obvious sinful behaviour that went along with that uh, pagan lifestyle. There would have been drunkenness. There would have been uh, orgies connected with the temples. There would have been temple prostitution. There would have been all kinds of stuff. It was a very anything goes kind of culture. And the, the Ephesians have become Christians from that kind of background, right? So partly you and I are not surprised when Paul says to them, um, you used to have this, you used to be mired in transgressions and sins. Um, that came from your disordered desires within and you used to be in a mess, right? We're not surprised. But the big shock is when Paul then says, all of us. Now, what was Paul's background? Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul was as well-behaved and squeaky clean and upright and uptight as they come, right? Paul was, had this impeccable, um, shiny exterior where nobody could point a finger at him and yet Paul says all of us Um, Paul stands with these former pagans and says my heart was no different right that's what he's saying my heart was no different right behind the shiny exterior there was just as much muck and mess and appetites out of kilter and hungers that have gone disordered and all the rest Um, Paul is saying Pharisees and pagans are in the same boat. Older brothers and younger brothers are in the same boat, right? There's more than one way to get lost. There's more than one way um, to get tangled uh, in a mess because of sin. We're all in the same mess. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory. Um, And so there's no room for kind of finger-pointing superiority. We're not, as we're trying to talk about this with our neighbours and in our culture, We're not looking down our noses at anybody. There's no room for that. All of us are in the same boat. Um, And I know I've probably uh, 
pull this one out from time to time, but I, I always find it a beautiful summary where uh, uh, the Times newspaper once asked a number of leading intellectuals to answer the question that we had at the beginning, what's wrong with the world today? And various intelligent people wrote in with various long-winded answers. But the wisest answer was also the shortest. Um, it came from a man called G.K. Chesterton, who was a Christian journalist um, in England. And his response simply said, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton held up his hands, said, I, I take the blame. <laughs> right? um, and Chesterton also said, he said, we men and women are all in the same boat upon a stormy sea and we owe to each other a terrible and tragic loyalty. Um, and I try to think about that quote sometimes when I think about our neighbours and our friends, and some of them, their lives are really obviously messy, and some of them are squeaky clean, um, and all the rest, but we're all in the same boat as humanity. So there's no room for condescension, superiority, um, finger-pointing. Um, I hope this story makes sense, but because um, it's maybe quite a personal memory. Um, but I had a really powerful um, moment when this kind of hit me in the heart, when Debbie and I were at a, a wedding service, uh, down in County Leash uh, for a friend of Debbie's from college. Um, it was a Catholic wedding service uh, in a little chapel in, uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and we, we knelt together as part of the service and I didn't really know what was going on and I didn't know when to stand and when to kneel and all the rest. Uh, and people knew the liturgy and were saying it and I didn't know it. Um, but there was this one part in the liturgy that hit me in the heart because I heard it really clearly. As this... And it's partly you've got a picture of this group of people who are Catholics and ex-Catholics and angry, angry lapsed Catholics and um, postmodern atheists and the whole mix, the whole shebang of mostly young adults um, from, from our culture. Um, but at this moment, we're all kneeling together. And I heard the words, I have sinned by my fault, by my fault, by my own most grievous fault. And I think what I felt at that moment, and this sounds really weird, is that that's a tremendously hopeful and liberating thing when you hear it right. That actually, as much as we've done a bad job of preaching that, both in Catholicism and in evangelical Protestantism, it's actually a profoundly liberating thing for a group of people to say, I'm going to stop blaming everybody else. I'm going to stop blaming my parents. I'm going to stop blaming society. I'm going to stop blaming those people over there who are the problem. And I'm going to simply say, by my fault, by my fault, by my own most grievous fault. And the old Latin that was mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And there's something, I wonder, can you feel that? There's something profoundly hopeful when a group of people from whatever background get on their knees and say that together and actually own that together. Then there can be a turning of the tide. There can be healing. There can be hope. There can be gospel. Right. I hope that makes sense, that little story. Um, what's the other phrase? So all of us are in this together. We're all in the same boat on a stormy sea. What's the other phrase? I'm sure for many of you it's your favourite phrase in this passage. But because of his great love for us. Um, people have quite rightly uh, seen this as one of the great, those great turning point moments in the Bible. One of the great butts of the Bible, if I can use that phrase. Uh, where things are going in one direction that sounds really gloomy and then you get but 
because of his great love for us. Um, If the main thing you hear this morning, and I know I've talked about it more, um, is sin, 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 then I haven't done my job as a preacher. Because that's not the loudest note in this passage. Um, Our sin is real, it's deep, it's dark. We, We get entangled, we get enslaved, we get seduced, we get deceived. And left to ourselves, we are dead. But what's the heartbeat of this passage is we are not left to ourselves. Um, There is a deeper and greater reality than human sin. Um, In fact, our sin is wildly outdone by the grace of God. Um, And I love the way Paul Paul kind of piles up the terms. He talks about God's great love. He talks about God being rich in mercy. He talks about the incomparable riches of his grace. And then he talks about his kindness. That's the one that almost gets me most because he drops it in almost quietly after the others. Um, There's something that is greater and deeper than all the ugly stuff that we've been talking about. Um, And so in some ways, if you put all the things we've been talking about, the world, the flesh, the devil, on one side of the balance, and then put God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness on the other side, there isn't even a contest, right? The balance balance would break. Um, God's grace is incomparably great. There's no comparison. Um, As Paul says in another letter, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds much more. No contest. His grace is incomparably greater than the other side of the scale. Um, And so I want to make sure you hear that this morning. Your sin is ugly and deep and dark, but it's not the most important thing we can say about you this morning. The most important thing we can say is that you are loved beyond your capacity to comprehend. You're loved with an everlasting love, a love that will not let you go. That's the most important thing we can say about you. Um, And we talked about God's anger earlier on, and we need to not whitewash that out of the story. Um, God is angry with human sin, and all of us, all of us come under the spotlight. But that's not the heart of the story or the end of the story. In fact, the Bible makes it really clear God is reluctant to show his anger, but he delights to show mercy, right? He delights to show it. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. Um, I wonder, can you hear it this morning, how much louder that note is than everything else that we've been talking about? Okay, I'm going to blow my nose for the the final stretch. Um, Here's where I want to finish this morning. Um, And this, this bit that I want to finish on has kind of been really on my heart the last couple of days, but I've been struggling to find the right way to say it. So I'm hoping... I'm hoping this makes sense or comes across. Be kind to me. Um, I, I guess what I've been thinking about is this, and you'll see I've gone diagram-tastic again here. Um, our, our old identity was that we were dead in sin. That's our old identity. Uh, in Adam, uh, that's who we are. Um, what, what is our new identity? Um, when, when, the, when the riches of grace and mercy and the kindness of God break into our lives through Jesus... What is our new identity we're brought into? Um, and we might be inclined to say this, that our new identity is that we are saved by grace. That, that, 
that phrase gets used twice in this passage, and it's really important to the message. Um, it's such a beautiful phrase, and, and it describes our inability to rescue ourselves and how God's love came down to lift us up. Um, we were saved by grace. Uh, we didn't do it ourselves. Um, but I find myself wondering, is that the best description of our new identity? Um, there's a sense in which, and I hope this makes sense, saved by grace goes with the arrow, right? It, it's describing the transition. By God's grace, we have been rescued from being dead in sin, but we haven't yet said what we are saved for. And I, and I, I wonder if sometimes this is a bit that we're not good at or we miss. Um, whenever we make saved by grace our identity, we actually sometimes stay with the past. Sometimes we say, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. And it can actually be a way of tying our identity to our sin that we talked about this morning. Um, We don't mean to do that. We're we're trying to take a biblical phrase, uh, saved by grace. But I wonder if it can sometimes make us a little backward looking. Um, uh, Maybe if I can use an image, maybe this will make sense. Um, It's kind of like we found the doorway through the wardrobe, like in the Narnia books, right? Um, And we can see through the wardrobe this new country beyond. It's kind of magical, right? But we choose to sit in the wardrobe among the mothballs, um, talking about how great it is that we have this wardrobe, that we're saved, right? The the being saved by grace is the wardrobe, right? Um, But we sit in the wardrobe among the mothballs, singing about how glad we are that... Uh, you know, we didn't build this wardrobe. It was given to us by grace. It's a gift. Um, but we don't ever go and explore the new country that we've been brought into. And that was the image that uh, kind of came together uh, for me as I thought about this. What is our new identity um, that we've been brought into by grace? It's this, that we are alive with Christ. Right? That's who we are. We used to be dead in sin. We are now alive with Christ. That is the defining reality of our lives. That's the country beyond the wardrobe, right? We've been brought from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of resurrection. And our life is now defined not by sin, but by the resurrection of Jesus and his resurrection life, which is within us, his incomparably great power for us who believe, which is the power that raised him from the dead, and is now in us. Um, so I want to ask you an honest question um, as we finish. Um, is, is that your experience in your life right now? Um, I want to encourage you to reflect on that. Is that your experience in your life right now? Um, some of us would say, I've been saved by grace, but we still live kind of defeated by sin and entangled and enslaved and deadened. But his incomparably great power is available to you right now. Some of us would say, I've been saved by grace, but we still live in anxious fear of the world and the devil. When the one who is in you is incomparably greater than the one who's in the world. Right? Amen. Um, Some of us say, I'm only a sinner saved by grace but we're kind of stuck in the wardrobe singing Amazing Grace, which is wonderful. Um, But always looking back to where we've come from and never stepping into the new world that we've been created for and saved for. Um, 
And so can I say it really bluntly uh, this morning? You are a sinner saved by grace, right? But you're not only that. You're not defined by the story of sin, but by the story of resurrection, right? That is what now defines your identity. Um, And so it's what I want to do now is just speak over you this morning your new identity. And you can close your eyes if you want uh, to hear it. Um, But I want to just speak over you your new identity as we finish. This is your new identity. You have been raised with Christ. You are now seated with him in the heavenly realms where the, the risen Christ is seated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So that means he's seated far above the powers of the world, the flesh and the devil. Those things are under his feet and you are seated this morning with him. And so I want to say you don't need to live for a moment defeated or defined by sin. You don't need to live for a moment intimidated by the world or afraid of the devil. You have been raised with Christ um, and you are this morning God's handiwork, his masterpiece, his walking, talking work of art created in Christ Jesus to go and do good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. So there is good, creative, joyful work for you to do in the world that only you can do. And I want to say to you this morning, go and find it. (laughs) Go and do it. Don't be defined by your past. Don't be defined by the world, the flesh and the devil. Be defined by the story of resurrection. Go and live the story of resurrection in the midst of the country of death. That's what you and I in the end are called to do. Um, Let's go find the good work we were created to do and do it in the power of the resurrection. Um, Let's pray and then let's sing. Um, Let me encourage you, if you'd like someone to pray with you this morning, uh, maybe especially, uh, not only, but especially if you're feeling kind of stuck in the wardrobe this morning, um, maybe you want to come and ask someone to pray with you before you go. Uh, They'll be be just up here where I'm standing right now and they'd love to pray with you. Um, Father, I want to pray... um, Would you enable the glad good news of the gospel to reach the deepest parts of us? Um, We do confess together that we have sinned and fallen far short of the glory of God. We hold up our hands together and say all of us together have gone astray. All of us together have created this mess that our world is in. But Father, we thank you that um, the kindness of God has appeared Um, your incomparable grace and love has been poured out in Jesus. Father, would you help us to believe this morning that our sin at its worst is wildly outdone by your grace. Father, would you help us as we go into our lives this week not to be defined by our past and our failures and our sin, but by the story of resurrection. We have been made alive with Christ. The same power that raised him from the dead is in us. Help us then to go and live freely. Help us then to go and live gladly. Help us to go and find the good work that's there for us to do. Um, And help us to know that the risen Christ is with us every step of the way. Um, And we pray in his name. Amen.